This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Uh, we welcome you to Bite Into It, where we discuss computing, new technology, brave new worlds, uh, all of the things that are interesting today. Uh, tonight on the show, uh, I'm joined by Joe Eaton. Joe, how are you tonight? I'm good. How are you? Not well, too, not concerned, but good. Concerned, but good. Well, interested. Um, and uh, Laura Summers. Um, Laura will also be uh, bringing us all the news that's uh, fit to pixelate tonight. Fit to be in a bait, maybe. Exactly. Um, I'm with you too. I'm Warren Davies. Um, on the show, we do talk a bit about uh, Google and their role in our lives. Um, uh, are they uh, too involved? Are they uh, doing the wrong things for us, the right things? Um, but one thing we can credit them for are their social impact projects. Um, uh, the Social Impact Challenge, uh, been running for a little while, has been hugely successful uh, at surfacing tech projects for social good. Uh, we'll talk to one of the winners of the Australian Challenge um, that was judged um, just recently uh, in just a few minutes. Um, also tonight, um, the impact of uh, technology on um, work and what kind of jobs we'll be doing um, is a, a really interesting topic for us here on Byte. Um, we've touched on it um, a few times in the past few months. Um, but we'll be very lucky to be joined by Tim Dunlop, uh, who's written a great book on why the future is workless. Uh, so if that interests you, you should definitely stick around. Uh, we're going to be discussing that one. But before we do, um, there is uh, a bit of news out there um, to grapple with. Um, if you if you have been online, uh, you will be aware that, uh, that there's been an election and uh, we are pretty close to having a result or we probably do have a result, Laura. What, what's, um, what's your take on it? Um, well, I believe it's been called. Um, I do think that uh, Trump has reached over that 270 mark for the Electoral College. Um, uh, look, I, I think, like many people, I am just in shock right now. I'm, mm. I'm not sure I'm coping with this news. Um, I definitely wasn't expecting it. Um, I don't know if you were or if anyone else um, this side of the river, shall we say, was. Um, there's There's been a lot of data analysis going through in 2016 for this election cycle in particular, and there's been some interesting um changes to this this particular demographic spread for the voting. For instance, there's been significantly more Hispanic votes. Um, Latino votes, I think, are actually at a record high. Um, interestingly, also, the Latino votes seem to have fallen in favor of Trump, which, frankly, really, really surprises me. But um, they won. he's won more than Mitt Romney did um, in 2012. So in in states like California, which is sort of a weird mash right now of blue and red, for instance, there's a strong lean in the Latino community towards Trump. So so we're seeing some very interesting data falling out, and I'm sure that, that that's going to continue over the next couple of days. It could just be that the, the, the tone of the election and, and the perception that someone was speaking for them, um, uh, if you track the sort of vote across sort of areas of unemployment, there are a few good mm. maps. I'm kind of sick of um, voting maps um, mm. from the past little while, even the funny ones. But um, if you compare... Um, um, the vote in um, states with high employment or uh, high unemployment, um, it does track against sort of Democrat and Republican. But uh, I, I don't know. Maybe you just look mm-hmm. at it and go, well, he's talking about other Latinos or he's talking mm-hmm. about, you know, um, my cousins or my extended family. But for me, like I'm going to vote on my wallet and, you know, it's yeah. strange. Made and take it seriously or I mean there's been a lot of push to um, empower people in general to get like people of color, Latinos, um, women, like people who aren't kind of like the traditional voters to get out there and vote more. Um, but maybe part of the pushback, as you say, is, is people are saying, well, you know, maybe I'm voting, but I'm not voting as you expected me to. You know, if I'm going to go and vote, I'm going to vote the way that I feel. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, I, I'd suppose um, 
like Latino Latino voters do tend to be conservative and Republican and and vote on economic matters. Um, I am just surprised because Trump has been really quite insulting towards most of the people in that community. So it's it's surprising to to hear that they've still come out really strongly in favor of him. Yeah, it's it's um it's certainly interesting. Um, one of the the things that did come out of this from a data perspective is the the data superhero of the the last election, um, Nate Silver, who mm-hmm. um, called uh, correctly, um, I think thirty nine of forty states that um, he was um, looking at. Um, his website, uh, five thirty eight, um, did predict a close election, but um, didn't um, overnight. I think predicted that it was going to be a, um, a Hillary uh, Clinton and Democrats mm-hmm. um, uh, win. Um, so got it wrong. Um, yeah. I did see a fair bit of sort of dancing on the numbers. <laughs> Um, uh, Dancing on his grave, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, look, I mean, A, no one is right, and B, this is very much a garbage in, garbage out kind of situation. Like, he's basing his um, results on opinion polls, and if those opinion polls are not getting statistically valid samples of people, if they're not talking to the right people, or mm. they're not a good balance of people, then then he's still making flawed assumptions. Um, he did say it was going to be close, and one thing that, like, I, I always struggle with is if you say, like, for instance, it's 70% Clinton is 30% Trump, that still means that, you know, in 30 of 100 times that you roll the dice, Trump wins. That's that's what the model says. Like, it doesn't mean that it's completely going to go for her. It means it's more likely to go for her. So, you know, even with his modeling, he didn't at all rule out a Trump victory. But I'm sure that the fact that he was leaning towards Trump, uh, so rather towards Clinton, everyone's going to have a little um, song and dance at his, his, his expense. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's um, data science. It's not... Mm, it's not a magic, shall we say. Speaking of people being dumped, uh, Samsung have dumped uh, a lot of phones recently, uh, which is uh, a bit of an environmental um, disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess one of the good things here is that it's forced us to look at um, recycling and what we do with our gadgets um, more closely. Um, what's the, the story behind this one? Um, so Samsung had this faulty um, chip that chip um, that caused them to recall a, a large number of their phones, and as a result, there's a number of environmental groups lobbying them to look at better and more efficient ways of recycling the components of those phones rather than just dumping them all on the tip. It was um, the battery of the Galaxy Note 7. That was it. It was a yeah. battery piece. Um, I think it exploded, actually. Mm. It caused, like, potentially serious harm. Um, so, obviously, like, they couldn't use those phones as is, but, you know, at the same time, we have this big issue of old smartphones cluttering up our um, our landfill and these um, sort of planned obsolescence um, computers being designed, built, pumped out to market, consumed, and then thrown away with, within two or three years. So we, we do need to think hard about, like, you know, particularly um, rare earth minerals, things like cobalt that we don't have that much of that we're not going to be able to replace once they're finished, um, and also the bigger environmental impact of not not just, like, throwing away all of these usable materials. There's a lot of stuff in them. Um, within the combined um, uh, cohort of Galaxy Note 7 smartphones, there is 20 metric tons of cobalt, uh, a ton of tungsten, a ton of silver, 100 kilograms of gold and 20 between 20 and 60 kilograms of palladium um, uh, according to one uh, engineering firm uh, even more waste was produced in, in refining um, the raw ore um, and yeah so it's a pretty mm-hmm. big footprint if they can actually recycle and do something with that that would make a lot of sense um, and I think it's a much needed PR win for them right like they've they've obviously like taken a bit of a hit in um, reliability in their brand mm. their brand value so you know you'd, you'd want them to come up 
come back with something strong to say, well, hey, look, you know, we're taking responsibility for this and we're, we're doing the right thing as a company. Mm. Uh, one of the other companies that is trying to do the right thing is the uh, Apple brand uh, and now selling refurbished iPhones um, on the Apple Store uh, in the States and I think maybe a few other countries. Um, they did actually do this back in 2007, but they discontinued it um, after the first iPhone. Um, but this is good. You actually um, you get a new battery, you get a new case. It's actually um, um, broken um, or unlocked, the phone. Um, uh, yeah, I think this yeah. is a great idea. You get a one-year yeah. warranty. Um, yeah, it means that you know your phone. Your phone isn't brand brand new, but at the same time, most people don't really need to spend a thousand or two thousand dollars on a brand new phone. So they get the quality and they get the sort of iPhone brand without having to cash out as much. Um, I think it's a great idea. I think refurbishing the phones. I mean, particularly as they're moving them more towards these black box environments where you're not allowed to tinker yourself and replace the RAM, replace the hard drive, or mm. improve your battery life. Um, if they're happy to do that and then put them back out to market and give those lives a little bit of a longer lifespan. That seems seems to make a lot of sense to me. Do you guys have like a bunch of old phones and tablets kind of sitting around? That you'd oh my like god, to... I have a box, and I keep feeling guilty about throwing it out. And I think, oh, it should be testing machines or something, <laughs> or else at some point they're going to be good for you know, like going into um, some kind of uh, like archiving. You know, like I, I have an old. You could start a museum. I, I could start a museum. I have a handspring, man. I have a pump pilot and a handspring. I have some very old shit. Oh. Yeah. Well, if you got some old blackberries and stuff, maybe we could do. Maybe the bite team could actually do a bit of a collection and bring in all of our stuff. That could be fun. I, I volunteer to take it down, or okay. we could just, or we could just start a museum. That might be more fun. Yeah. Um, something that is a lot of fun is the uh, old Sega Mega Drive or Genesis. Um, if you are from somewhere else in the world, um, following in the footsteps of Nintendo, um, Tectoy, a Brazilian publisher and distributor of Sega's consoles and games, has opened pre-orders for a new production uh, run of the Sega Mega Drive. Um, it's going to be modelled on the original console and it will play existing cartridges and use uh, wired controllers uh, but also feature a couple of modern uh, um, uh, things that we like like a SD card slot and uh, you also get 22 pre-installed games um, yeah playing playing games like Golden Axe and uh, Sonic um, I think Sonic was like up there with Mario Brothers for me as one yeah. of the games of my childhood it definitely epitomizes like it is like the only game that I really got into in all honesty um, and I, I remember those controllers are just sitting there like you know getting blisters on my thumbs on each side like trying to make the the hot hedgehog like flip and go super fast the, um, they're actually trying to do it pretty faithfully to the original um, circuitry of the um, uh, the 25-year-old uh, electronics. Um, Mega, Mega Drive features 64 kilobytes of RAM, um, actually less than the uh, original uh, 72 kilobytes. Um, there's going to be some video RAM. Uh, it's going to be 4.3 uh, aspect ratio, uh, 4 by 3, which is great, um, and a resolution of 256 by 224 pixels. Incredible. Um, lots of fun. Question there. Do you think this is just purely going for the nostalgia vote or are they expecting to see like new young consumers get onto this platform? Uh, I don't know. I kind of, I don't know. Who, who knows what the kids are thinking? Mm. Um, I, I think it's probably the nostalgia market. I mm. think, you know, there's a bunch of kind of exes out there who would love to just, um, you know, probably can't find their old Mega Drive or got rid of it ages ago. Um, yeah, and, and would, you know, happily pay two or three hundred bucks for, for a bit of nostalgia um, and probably show it to their, you know, younger brothers and sisters or whatever. Hopefully, um, can't, be, can't be bothered with that too busy with um, PlayStation 4 or something like that. Yeah, yeah, that'd be my guess as well. But I'd be curious. I'd love to see some, like, three-year-olds having a play with a new Sega. that make me happy, feel like a continuity going down the, the generations of gamers. <laughs> that'd be great. Um, 
Speaking of something new, Gmail has uh, got a new iOS app, I understand, Joe. Yeah, this this news story appeals to me somewhat because last week I um, I tweeted, ban me from typing into anything except triple confirmed text boxes when I've had less than five hours sleep. Uh, what, did, what did you tweet? Uh, let's let's not go into it. Do you want to talk um, about it on radio? No. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but so that if you need to update your Gmail app, I recommend you do so. They've got an mm. undo send feature. So when you when you go to send an email now from your iPhone, you will have a small moment in time where you can hit undo send. So no regrets. Mm. Did, did you guys ever um, let people recall emails? Have you, you know, when you get that request, you don't see it as much anymore. I forget which yeah. email client it was with. It's an Outlook feature. Right. Um, I received one of those recently from a very sweet um, guy who's completely tied into the um, Windows environment, shall we say? He's yeah. not. He's not into this whole Apple world thing. Mm. Um, but it's it's very funny because it just says, "Can I please take that email back?" But it's sitting there in your inbox, and you have to like comply by deleting it. It's not actually like a. It's not a recall as it would be if um, Outlook actually controlled the environment it was all on the one email server um but yeah it, it's very much a um like internal email server sort of inside a business kind of environment where that was able to happen where you could recall an email at any point that had been sent um but yeah it's it's much harder to do that with distributed cloud computing these days I'm sure it must just be a delayed send rather than a oh yeah a recall no, on they're the just giving you a moment to like yeah you know, go shit. Ooh, bugger. No, don't do that. It's been paused. Mm. Um, one of the other things that uh, I did see um, uh, recently was um, a great story about the um, Stephen Hawking is uh, searching for um, extraterrestrial life, and uh, he is uh, we're particularly particularly interested in I think Alpha Centauri. Mm. Um, I think it's Proxima, it Proxima Centauri, oh, um, Proxima which is Centauri. also I get those mixed up all the time. Oh yeah, they're they're very similar star systems. Um, this is I don't know. You guys may have seen. This it um, came out maybe three or four months ago. Um, there was a Stephen Hawking and a Russian entrepreneur Yuri Milner um, produced this really beautiful video that was like, let's let's look at the world outside of ourselves and um, let's let's get into what's out there. Let's let's continue this task that SETI has been doing for the last fifty years and look for life outside of our our planet. Um, and it was so beautifully produced that it almost felt like fiction. Um, but they're actually doing things. They are they are um, utilizing this enormous telescope. Um, uh, which is um, called the CSIRO Parks Telescope. Um, yeah, it's quite a famous one. It was yes. uh, from a, a film also. Um, yes, Contact? The, the Dish. The Dish. Yeah. Oh, The Dish, that's yeah. right. Um, it's, it's an enormous radio telescope and it, it has um, the ability to look very closely and very far away for radio waves and to attempt to um, determine... Um, irregularities, changes in the spectrum to see if there is something that could be sentient life sending us signals. Uh, along with uh, a large telescope in West Virginia, the Green Bank Telescope and Automated Planet Finder at Lick Observatory in California, uh, the three telescopes will be uh, helping to survey galaxies closer to our own for extraterrestrials. So um, if they're out there, I don't know, maybe tonight would be a good time to distract us from what's going on and, uh, and make Feel contact. Feel free to make contact any moment, these guys. <laughs> or else just reveal yourselves to be Donald Trump and then it'll all be okay. <laughs> that would be great. One of the things that uh, we do look forward to is a uh, tech arm wrestle. And uh, one of the best ones is the um, uh, Google one, um, uh, the Google Impact Challenge, uh, which was held in Australia recently. 
Um, Sarah is the Centre for Eye Research Australia and Dr. Will Yan is the lead researcher uh, for Sarah's Vision at Home projects and they actually scooped the prize. Um, Will, congratulations and, and thanks for coming in tonight. Thanks for having me. Um, did you actually get like a little trophy or something that you can put on the mantelpiece or, or something like that? <laughs> yeah, we did. We, uh, we received a little wooden trophy that's being engraved at the moment, but it's uh, taking a while. It's uh, almost two weeks now, so just waiting for it to come. They quite often disappear as well. Like um, if you have an oh, awards no. night, you don't know where, who took it home, um, you know, what happened to it, did it get in the wrong taxi, something like that. Um, so firstly, the Google Impact Challenge, it's a, it's a pretty prestigious competition. Yes. Um, is this the first time that you I'm or Renee, Sarah I'm had an anti-gravity instructor. Yeah, so it's the first time uh, that Sierra's entered this competition. Yep. It was last held in Australia in 2014, uh, and typically they only hold it uh, once in a country. Yep. But um, the feedback was that the quality of ideas was so good in 2014 that they decided to hold it again in Australia this year. There's some um, amazing uh, our projects that went on there. If you yes. go to the uh, impactchallenge.withgoogle.com uh, slash Australia 2016, um, there was a uh, autonomous robot to protect coral from the Great Barrier Reef um, and, and their ecosystem. Um, there was uh, a personalised app to change relationships with alcohol, um, a Hello Sunday Morning, um, which was um, a great idea. Um, there's lots of projects around uh, nature conservation, um, uh, community development. Um, what do you think you guys stood out? What, what was the difference, do you think, between um, Sierra's project and, and, and the other entries? Well, I think, first of all, they were all fantastic projects. I mean, each one of the 10 finalists had uh, really um, technology-driven um, projects with very big uh, scope of impact. I think where we um, kind of stood out was that, um, you know, vision impairment is really something that's quite close to a lot of people. And the size of the problem is just enormous, uh, both in Australia and around the world. Um, I think our project presented quite a feasible and um, uh, technology-driven way of addressing vision impairment in Australia. And uh, I think ultimately it was a very, very close competition um, but um, we're quite lucky to walk away with the prize. So in terms of that problem that you were just talking about, um, it, it does affect Australia. There's around 600,000 mm. Australians with vision impairment and Australia is one of the only Western na- nations or even the only Western nation with incidences of uh, trachoma, That's which right. um, I only just found out about. Can you tell us a little bit about trachoma and, and how your project solves something like trachoma? Well, our project is to do with visual acuity screening. Uh, one of the causes of reduced vision is trachoma and like you said, uh, Australia is the only developed country in the world that still has trachoma. Uh, and this is really uh, in our indigenous and remote communities. It's caused by a bacterial infection that causes the eyelashes to turn inwards. And over time, if it's undiagnosed and untreated, it can lead to scarring of the cornea, which eventually leads to blindness. Okay. And so um, the the project, um, the Sierra project, yes. um, uh, can intervene early by picking up on, on signs of trachoma? or Yeah, that's right. So... Visual acuity is really the gateway test in ophthalmology. It allows us to pick up all sorts of diseases ranging from um, cataract to um, trachoma, as well as short-sightedness typically. The hope is that with early detection, we're able to treat these diseases early and stop people from uh, going blind ultimately. Mm. What's the basic technology? What, what, yeah. what's, um, what's the concept behind this? So the concept is that uh, patients will be able to log on to a platform and use a credit card or a standard size object to calibrate the distances between them and the computer screen, and then from this distance be able to measure their visual acuity. Uh, It's all feature recognition based, so the problem at the moment is that with electronic charts, patients need to measure the distances themselves, 
And often um, you can't really rely on the information that you get from a person self-diagnosing their vision. A clinician ultimately needs to be present. But with this app, the hope is that regardless of where a patient sits in front of a screen, we'll be able to get an accurate, reliable measurement of their vision uh, for referral and treatment purposes. Is there a a typical kind of um, uh, error sort of uh, margin that's acceptable in these kinds of circumstances? Or, Joe, do you you know about this? Like, how accurate are are sort of general vision tests usually? Well, there are there are Australian standards in terms of um, margins of error and correcting eyesight, but Mm. you probably know more about this than I do. The only thing I'd say is that there is a lot of um, inter-observer, inter-observer rather. Um, difference. Mm. So uh, a lot of variations present depending on who is measuring the vision. Right. Even in the hospitals, um, the, the vision measurement that an eye specialist would get would be very different to what uh, a GP or a nurse might get and certainly different to what a patient would get if they were to measure the vision at home mm. by themselves. And uh, in terms of, uh, I guess, the, the process of being a, a part of uh, a challenge like the Google Impact Challenge, like what do you do? You form a, a team in advance and is it a long process for anyone entering this kind of thing? What would be your advice to sort of forming a team and to presenting a project? Oh, look, I'd certainly say give it a go. What, what we've done is we've um, built the, the, the team for the, um, the competition from this project, which has been going on for about a year and a half uh, to, the, to date. Uh, so it initially started with um, a call to action from Google. The competition opened in July and we sent in an application along with 600 other non-for-profits. Uh, we got narrowed down to a short list of maybe 20 or 30 organisations and then there was a initial interview and then a second interview before we got to the pitch stage. Um, so it was it was a very interesting but enjoyable experience and I certainly say to anyone out there with a great idea for social impact and change to give it a go. Yeah. Um, so what, what's the next step for the project? Like what do you do now that you've won and how do you sort of start rolling it out or start seeing how um, the app is taken up in the market and, and how it's going? Like, yeah, what, what next? So the first thing we're going to do is run a qualitative study to see exactly what uh, Australian patients uh, want and expect from the platform mm-hmm. and how to make it more user-friendly and how to best engage our users. Uh, The second part of it would be to run uh, real-world studies uh, in different settings, including uh, hospitals, out in the community, and in Indigenous schools, um, which is what we're looking at doing. Um, Ultimately, uh, you know, we'll probably need to refine the technology to make it suitable for, um, you know, all all sorts of smartphones and tablets in Australia. Um, But uh, that's that's kind of the plan from here for Mm -hmm. the next two years. So, yeah, I guess, like, the challenge is making sure people who are at risk of these diseases actually use this product. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, typically, it'd be elderly patients who would need to have their vision tested more frequently, and we just want to make the software as easy and accessible as possible. Mm. So that means free, free on the App Store? Yes. Yeah, cool. Mm-hmm. This is a topic that's very close to my heart. I've just um, finished studying to be an optical dispenser. Mm-hmm. So um, I've noticed a, a couple of things like this. Have you um, seen the American company Opternative? Yes, I have. Yeah. I feel like this is a much better way of approaching it. I feel from a community perspective, it works better than a commercial one because people seem to be forgetting about eye health when doing it in a commercial sense. They're just, they just want to buy glasses online and then they forget that they need to have their retina looked at. And How do you feel about that? 
I think um, between the stage of uh, detecting a problem with vision and having treatment, there ultimately needs to be a clinician that's involved, um, both to make sure that the treatment the patients are getting is correct, but also to counsel and explain to patients what exactly is going on and um, how they can reduce the risk factors and look after their vision going forward. So I don't think, uh, you know, a platform like this is designed to replace clinicians um, per se. I think it's designed to complement, but also to, yeah, Mm. just to increase access generally in in Australia. Excellent. I noticed that um, one of the first parts of of what you want to do next is to test the um, technology with post-operative patients um, from the eye and ear ear hospital. Um, How do you make sure you get a good cross-section of people in testing? I mean, you may have already done some some user testing when you were, you know, sort of before the the competition. Um, Sort of how many people do you need to test with before you kind of figure out that it's the, the right technology? Well, that testing would be about uh, looking at if the technology can improve the standard of follow-up for post-operative patients. Okay. So we'd be doing it alongside with their regular follow-up. Um, you know, after surgery, patients are typically uh, expected to come back to clinic to have their eyes re-examined. Um, we, we'd be looking at a cohort of uh, possibly 100 to 150 people, mm. uh, depending on how well we can enrol patients. Um, but the, the technology itself has already been validated in an overseas clinical trial to be um, the same as the gold standard that we use in clinic at the moment. Amazing. Um, and do you have any other uh, sneaky little projects that you can tell us about with a, a technology bent, or is this kind of occupying all of your time right now? It, it is. Uh, I'm also working full time as a clinician, so it's it's um it, it is it's something that I'm really passionate about. Uh, what we're looking at doing is building in other tests along with visual acuity, which includes colour blindness, visual fields, and in the future we're looking at um, incorporating the automated diagnosis of retinal diseases as well into this platform, which uses um, deep learning and convolutional neural networks to image the back of the eye and um, help come up with a retinal diagnosis as well. I think we need to get you back in to talk about that when that happens. (laughs) That sounds really cool. It's very exciting. Yeah. I'd be curious to know how are you imaging the retina for that sort of for convolutional neural networks and machine learning work? Like how are you capturing those data to begin with? Yeah. Well, at the moment, um, you would use a, uh, a camera that specialises in taking pictures of the posterior segment. What some people are doing is using smartphones to take pictures of the retina. And in fact, one of the projects that won the Google Impact Challenge 2014 was the Fred Hollows Foundation, uh, which um, developed a, a, an automated uh, diagnosis device called Marvin, which is uh, based off a, a smartphone that could take pictures of the back of the eye. Does that require any additional lens to the camera or yeah so if if we were to use smartphones uh you probably need an adapter uh, as well as a lens um to to be attached to the adapter uh, which um obviously is another challenge to implement in remote communities um so yeah watch the space we certainly will. Uh, well, thanks for coming in. It's a great project, and we're uh, certainly really stoked for, for you and the team at CIRA. Um, congratulations. Thank you for having me. So in the studio, we have Tim Dunlop, um, a Melbourneian author of um, a new book called Why the Future is Workless. He is also a pioneer of political blogging in Australia. <laughs> he ran the internationally <laughs> pioneer. I, I'm imagining you, like, out in the plains. That was me, yeah. Staking your <laughs> claim. Um, he ran the internationally successful independent blog, The Road to Serfdom, and was the first Australian blogger to be hired by a mainstream media organization, News Limited, for whom he wrote the political blog, um, Blogocracy. 
that was a bit of a tongue twister. <laughs> he has a PhD in communication and political philosophy, teaches at Melbourne Uni, and writes regularly for a number of publications, including The Drum. Also one of my favorites, by the way. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show, Tim. Thank you very much for having me. Um, it's really exciting to chat about this topic. It is, for those who are interested, um, automation of work and what might happen in terms of technological unemployment going forwards and the ways in which we can choose to tackle that problem if and when it happens. That's exactly right. Um, I was. I, I do talk about the technological side of it because that's kind of what's driving the change. But um, the book is really about uh, how we respond to these things socially and politically. Mm. Um, I'd love to kick off on the topic of identity because one thing I, I really responded to in this book was um, this issue of how there's this moral imperative to work very much bound into um, our identities, our sense of self, and how that's very much um, seen to flow through things like social programs and, um, uh, you know, like getting the dole, getting any kind of assistance. Like you have to prove yourself, you have to show that you're worthy, um, and if you if you're not really like trying hard, then you're not a worthy human being. You shouldn't you shouldn't have that help. So um, I'm curious, what are your thoughts? How do we get here? Why is it so, why are those two things so intrinsically linked? Well, um, work has just been one of those things for hundreds of years now that has, you know, it's how we stay alive. So it's it's natural that it's tied to um, issues like self-worth, etc., etc. So, um, but, you know, there was a really big change when the world kind of moved into capitalism and then the development of America and you had, um, you know, um, the development of what we call the Protestant work ethic, um, you know, Weber's concept of, of Weber's concept of the Protestant work ethic, which is that, you know, to show that you were a good citizen, that you had to be thrifty and work hard mm-hmm. and, and that was how you contributed to mm-hmm. society. And, you know, to some sort of extent that, that made sense in a world where there was plenty of work to be done and um, and to an extent it was a world of scarcity. So, you know, you constantly had to be producing stuff just in order to stay alive. But as we've progressed, especially around technology, um, that those issues of scarcity and needing that sort of human labour to produce the things that we need um, has diminished quite dramatically. And partly what the book argues is that um, that trend is going to continue into mm. the future. So we're kind of in this transition period at the moment where we're still living in the shadow of that traditional work ethic moving into a period um, where we don't need as much work and mm-hmm. how do we square that circle and it's going to be a very difficult thing for um, people to come to terms with I think mm-hmm. as, a, as a social issue. Um, and when you say we don't need as much work to produce things, um, I think an, an industry that exemplifies that is agriculture, right? Like you, right. we've gone from this sort of small family farming situation where you have a lot of bodies, a lot of labor to this, um, you know, enormous industrial complexes run mostly by machinery with very few real bodies needed there. And the output in, is also like many, many times what it used to be. Um, so just, just to clarify, when we're talking about technology, meaning less work, it just, it's as simple as, um, if fewer bodies are needed or if we still are getting the resources out at the end, like those, like in this case, food or, um, like, uh, produce that, that we're, we're essentially seeing this outcome, um, that's making making um, essentially like light of the need for labor. Um, that was a bit of a ramble. I, I wanted to <laughs> um, I wanted I wanted to unpick that um, more, but I'm also really curious to hear um, 
what how do you think um this this protestant work ethic and and there's a great quote in the book which is um from the english poor act which i want to read um if any man or woman able to work should refuse to labor and live idly for three days he or she should be branded with a red hot iron on the breast with the letter v and should be judged the slave for two years of any person who should inform against such idler so there you have it the like um if you see something say something it started here right like this is the well i mean classic dubbing you could have like Coachella or something like you just like hanging mm-hmm. back. Wow, that's 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 a serious. It's sentence. intense, right? Yeah. It's intense, and and you know, there's modern days equivalents of that on the front page of the Daily Telegraph. With um, you know, we constantly talk about doll bludgers and yeah. uh, and that sort of stuff. We don't, you know, there's no calls to brand them with hot irons anymore. But there's mm-hmm. certainly um, huge um, obligations put on them in return for being able to um, draw the the pittance of a doll that we offer these days. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, the, the the middle of the book deals with this whole question of how much automation is going to happen, how soon, how many jobs are at risk. Um, there's a lot of statistics floating around around this, um, and you, there's a lot of papers and academics tackling it. So can you maybe summarize some of that, that sure. stuff you tackled? Um, th- well, the, the main report that sort of, um, triggered a lot of this current talk about job losses was done by the Oxford Martin School um, in Britain and um, they looked at 702 job categories which is the number of categories that the, the uh, United States Department of Labor categorises mm-hmm. and they applied various criteria to it and looked at how likely um, those jobs were to be automated in the next 20 years and they concluded that 47% of that 702 of those 702 jobs were going to be automated within 20 years. Um, then there was another report that was done by the OECD and they, they had a different methodology um, and, in fact, they were quite critical of Oxford Martin. Um, they said you can't really just look at the jobs by themselves. You have to look at the tasks mm. that go in because, you know, any, any given job involves a number of different tasks. So if you apply the same sort of criteria, how likely are the tasks to um, be automated in the period? The figure that they came up with was... Um, only, only, um, 9% of um, of jobs were at risk through automation. Now, you know, that's that's a considerable dif- difference. But, um, you know, kind of as you were breathing a sigh of relief about that maybe, um, McKinsey & Company, the big um, consulting firm, did a, a similar um, survey to the OECD and they looked at 2,000 tasks um, and said, you know, how likely are these to be automated? And they c- actually came to the conclusion that 45% of those 2,000 tasks tasks could be automated with currently existing technology. So not even in 20 years' time. So there's... um there's, there's a range of reports. When I was in Adelaide recently, um, somebody came and heard me talk and they gave me a copy of a report that the Adelaide gov- uh, the, the South Australian government had just done, which had um, applied the same criteria to jobs in South Australia and looked at um, how likely they were to be automated. And basically they came up with, you know, the 45 to 50% figure in 20 years. Um, there's another big report done by the International Labour Organisation, which looked at um, five countries in five ASEAN countries um, and looked at um, so you know more developed countries mm-hmm. and looked at how likely technology was to affect jobs there and again the figure was around about the 45 percent mark mm-hmm. so if you look at all these studies the OECD one that came in at nine percent looks 
little bit like an outlier. Mm. But my take on all of this is that, okay, so let, let's say, let's take the, all those reports and say that the figure is somewhere between 10% and 50% of jobs disappearing in 20 years. Even at the bottom end of that, that's a lot. You know, mm. that's, that's a really big thing. And I think the main thing to remember is, whatever figure you kind of settle on or whatever figure it ends up being is the point is that that technology will exist and it's going to constantly be putting pressure on human labour. So constantly humans are going to be competing against machines and basically machines are the functional equivalent of slave labour. So we're basically functioning or competing against slave labour and that's, you know, that's an enormous um, thing for an, a society to absorb, I think. Uncomplaining and precise and ex- tireless ex- slave labour. <laughs> ex- exactly right. That's, mm. that's, that's that's the thing, 24-7. Yeah. It, is it... Is it- uh, I mean, to throw a spanner in the works, is it kind of a privileged Western view of work to say that type of work doesn't have any value in it? Or if you're doing that, you are a slave to the clock and to the, you know, the company that you're well, working it, for? Well, I, I only meant slave in the sense of not getting paid oh, for sure, it. So, so not, not in terms of devaluing it yeah, necessarily. No. I, look, I, I tend to agree that mm. there is, um, some of these discussions do get a little bit of that Western privileged view in there, or even you know even a class privileged view sure, in yeah. there, where you know you tend to think that well you know maybe working at McDonald's or on a uh, on a factory line isn't proper work or something or isn't worthwhile yeah. work, and and you know that's not necessarily true at all. Um, yeah. the, the whole notion of um, the value that we um, apply to work um, it, it applies across all sorts of work. Mm-hmm. But my my point was more that. Um, in terms of return for the effort that you're putting in, yeah. um, the, the machines are going to beat us hands down every time mm. because, um, as Laura said, uh, it's they they work for nothing, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and you know, um, I, I was reading about. Um, new technology that was going into GM factories and they were kind of sort of boasting about it in a sense in that it's um, technology, so robots that work with humans and they were saying that um, therefore it's not replacing humans. Well, mm. let come and see me in five years and we'll see if that's actually the case. Yeah. But the interesting thing to me in that discussion, in, in that article, was that the cost of installing one of these machines was $45,000. So it helps people do um, stuff like um, apply glue to components mm. to put them together and that sort of stuff. And it does it much more efficiently. Mm. So they save a lot of money in the amount of glue that they use, etc., etc. But $45,000 to put one of those robot arms in, the average wage in the factory is $32,000. So, mm. you know, roughly equivalent. Mm. Um, but the, the machine is a one-off expense, of course. Be interesting to know whether it's kind of, uh, I mean, we're, we're talking about it now, so inc- including us and the people such as unions and people who, um, uh, advocate for organised labour, um, how representative they are of the majority of workers at, at all kinds of levels of jobs that can be automated. I mean, it's not even, it's not even just, um, class based really. I mean, we, we were talking earlier on about diagnosing eyes at home and, you know, right. potentially, um, a, 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 a medical skill yeah. becoming obsolete like, 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 like that. Exactly. <laughs> Right, yeah, um, doing blood tests, cholesterol yeah, um, tests, that sort of stuff. Yeah, um, classic radiology scanning. It's going to be right. machine machine learning very soon. Exactly. I, I do wonder. There's kind of there's there's kind of two arguments. There's the uh, isn't it amazing 
like, isn't it what an amazing world that we live in? <laughs> and then there's almost like a secondary thing like, oh my God, the thing that my dad used to do or his dad before him or, or my mother is gone. So maybe there's a, there's like, oh, maybe there's a bit of regret there. But then I, I kind of feel like, and this is just, you know, one person's point of view, maybe the majority of people who are doing these mundane jobs, so long as they get their thing at the end of the day, as long as they get their loaf of bread and, you know, a bottle of wine or something like that, it's kind of okay. They're probably, they might rather be doing other stuff like um, well, reading the, or learning. Yeah, or, I, I think that's right. It, but it depends on the circumstances in which that happens. If the unemployment is just dropped on them oh, yeah. a, a, as as um, something that they've got no choice in, yeah. then then that becomes a real problem, I think. But if they've actually got a say in the shift yeah. to um, a more automated future yeah. and there's some system whereby the, um, they, they've got income or you know some sort of support, depending on how their economic system itself works, um, then, yeah, I think there is the potential where people will, you know, I mean... Vote one robot party. I mean, well, you know, well, if they've got, well, if they've got a progressive of, you know, social people, plan. Yeah. You know, people spend millions of dollars buying lottery tickets every year. And, you know, it's pretty much the logic there is to stop work. You know, yeah. that, that's why you want to win the lottery. So mm-hmm. there is that desire out there. But, but you know, if you ask people do, you know, what do you think about robots taking your job? Well, they're, they're going to yeah. be upset about it naturally. That's how you frame it. So, it, it. yeah, it depends on how... And this is kind of part of the thrust of the book is that, you know, let's talk about how we make this transition if that's what we want to do. Let's mm-hmm. talk about how we make that transition so that, you know, people... It isn't just dumped on people yeah. um, as the inevitable consequence of the um, the vagaries of capitalism that um, there, there's actually some democratic control over the process yeah and, and to be fair like there's a big difference between suddenly becoming unemployed and dealing with that stigma versus being like woohoo I have a hundred million oh, yeah bucks. that's right it's a hundred million dollars yeah, it's very um, different so so talk us through real fast like what are what are the ways you can see this falling out like what what kinds of choices do we have or what what potential features might happen um, if if um, we get 20 years down the track and we do say have 40 percent of people unemployed um, or what can we do before we get there even right um, yeah well I think there's um, there's kind of three ways you can go. One is there's the, and and this this happens already. There is sort of this pining in politics for um, we could just go back to full employment if we made different decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't think that's realistic because simply because of the existence of the um, of the technology. Um, and also because the structure of the economy's changed. We've gone sort of from an industrial economy to an information economy. So a lot of wealth is actually generated through manipulating information um, and knowledge. And that sort of work, you just don't need as many people to do it. So, I, you know, I don't think you can sort of fantasise about going back to a period of full employment built around an industrial economy where there were car factories and... Um, you know, other sorts of manufacturing mm. industries. So that's, but this is, this is something people seriously talk about and it's sort of, um, it's sort of part of, um, a lot of mainstream politics is that, you know, Malcolm Turnbull ran on jobs and growth at the last election, which is sort of that kind of fantasy. The other, um, approach is that, you know, let's just muddle along and the market will take care of everything. You know, we'll, we'll sort it out and, 
you know, politics maybe will knock off some of the rough edges, but es- essentially, you know, the machines will come online and they'll get displaced and, you know, maybe we'll retrain people to do other stuff and move into well, we're other areas. The, we're seeing the, the, the outcome of that today, like in the, in the mm-hmm. polls on the other side of the yeah, planet. Yeah, that's arguably it's, like the result of what's just happened tonight. So. I, I know, exactly. What, what mm-hmm. a, what a thing that was. Mm-hmm. Um, that's going to be a fun for you, isn't it? <laughs> um, but, um, so, and, and like a lot of mainstream economists kind of have that view that, you know, yeah, the market will take care of it. The, you know, the machines, um, they destroy jobs, but they create jobs as well. And the economy will shift accordingly. And, you know, people talk about in the past, this has happened, which is quite true. And the, the, the usual example that's thrown up is ATMs. So, you know, ATMs threatened to take away all the jobs of people who worked in banks, but ended up creating more jobs because the, you know, the nature of banking changed. So instead of just people handing money over a counter, um, which is what the ATM could now do. They retrained people to sell financial products, etc. And actually, they they saved money and they opened more branches and employed more people. But um, it's kind of the exception that proves the rules, the rule in a lot of ways, I think. So then the third approach is... And, and I think this is, and, and I kind of came to this reluctantly as I was re- writing the book, you know. The third approach is actually maybe we should just embrace the technology and, um, you know, actually let it start doing the jobs that we're doing and free up people to do other stuff. But, of course, in order to do that, you need some other um, system of support for people um, other than wages if, if people aren't going to be earning wages, they've got to earn a living some other ways. Um, they've got to be eligible for, let's say, money um, some other way. So that's when I start, I've got a whole chapter in there about the, the notion of um, universal basic income, which, um, you know, I, I sort of get a bit worried about sort of proselytising about universal basic income because I can see problems with it, but um, especially around um, housing because it doesn't really sort of take care of housing and that's still something people have to... We like to be different and we like to show status and well, all, all and, and there's stuff. Yeah, there's that too, but, but it's... UBI um, is the only sort of thing I've really seen that potentially allows us to break that nexus between work and survival mm. and and generate um, income in another way so that people are actually able to to function in a in a um, let's say in a in essentially a middle class way in a in an acceptable at an acceptable standard of living um, in a society where there isn't as much work anymore mm. Um, well, look, I'm all for it personally, but I think we'll have some hard work getting the politicians to consider it and plan for it. I think um, you're right. Tim, I could talk about this for another half an hour, but I'm afraid we've run out of time. Thank you so much for coming in to chat about your book. Thank you um, very much for having me. I highly recommend going out and having a read, Why the Future is Workless. Um, just a few minutes left in the show, we did want to call uh, your attention to a few things. Um, you may have noticed, um, or you may not have, Triple R is actually 40 years old uh, this year. Um, as part of the celebrations, there's actually going to be a month of Max Headroom specials each Thursday night. Um, I think the second one is on tomorrow night. Uh, there's going to be live broadcasts uh, next week from the Melbourne Music Week Hub um, uh, during some of the drive shows, um, if I can call on those, at the State Library. Uh, so get down to the hub. But the one thing I did want to uh, flag. Um, if you want to get your dancing shoes on, um, there are going to be Friday night parties um, uh, supported by Triple R DJs um, at the State Library um, pop-up bar 
um, where you get to do a whole bunch of stuff. You can explore the readings, uh, exclusive vinyl shop, um, get late night access to the on-air 40 years of Triple R uh, exhibition. Uh, they're on from uh, 7 till 10 p.m. at the State Library of Victoria, and there's a series of them uh, over the next few months. Uh, I think the first one is on uh, Friday the 25th of November with uh, Anthony Carew, uh, who's up next, uh, Johnny Topper and Lauren Taylor and Simon Winkler. So uh, that should be um, pretty fun. Um, one of the other things that um, we might point out is also a film screening. Um, the University of Melbourne's sustainability team is hosting a film screening of the 2016 documentary directed by Sue Williams. It looks at the environmental and social impact of our fascination and reliance on consumer technology, and quite related to what we were just chatting about with Tim. Uh, it's called Death by Design, which I haven't I haven't caught yet, so mm. we should definitely go and check that out. Yeah, that sounds great. It's 6, to 6 p.m. to 7.30 next Wednesday at the Carilla Gartner Theatre at the Sydney Meyer Asia Centre, 761 Swanston Street. Um, there are a couple of um, other weird little tidbits as well. Um, uh, if you've been watching Black Mirror uh, Season 3, um, which is out on uh, Netflix at the moment, you may have seen they've got a weird uh, rate-me.social uh, game, um, an app for social ranking. They've actually made it, um, or an approximation of it, um, just for fun. So if you are a Black Mirror fan, um, you can go and check it out. Um, it's on their Twitter account, uh, at Black Mirror, or you can go to uh, rate-me.social as well uh, and check that out. Um, do you remember when that was going to be big Thing a few was years ago. State, was that Peep? Was it Art Imitating Life? That um, that uh, it was the Yelp for people, right? There was the, right. the yeah. app where you were able to go in and um, rank the people that you knew in whatever way. Yeah, old <laughs> boyfriends and girlfriends and yeah. stuff. Great. Yeah, that was getting <laughs> hot or not from like 2002 yeah. or whenever that was. Yep. Well, this is just more like, are you a good person? Are you a five-star person or not? <laughs> I mean, hot or not, I feel like it's shallow, but like it's not attempting to be an overall personality rating. Uh, one guy who's definitely hot right now is the chap who went to pick up uh, a sausage from Bunnings uh, with his drone. Um, have, have either of you guys caught up on this one at all? Yeah, my favourite part of the story was the part where they said it could not be confirmed whether he requested onions or not. <laughs> Very hard to pick up onions with your drone, mm. um, I, I would have said. So um, he's looking at a fine of around uh, $9,000. Um, there was a note in a plastic bag on the drone that says, please buy snag and put in bag, here's $10. Um, yeah, he then flew it down to collect um, his sausage. Which $9,000 seems pretty harsh. It is pretty harsh. Um, we've had a lot of fun tonight. We're off to Bunnings to get uh, our sausage. Uh, thank you very much to our guests for uh, coming in tonight, Dr. Will Yang and Tim, Tim Dunlop. Um, we've been bite into it. We'll be back next Wednesday evening. And up next is the International Pop Underground with Anthony Carew. Stick around. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.